Revelation chapter 21, if you would please. <clears throat> this morning, with God's help, we will be considering verses 2 through 5. 2 through 5. Please give uh, this, the word of God, your full attention, for it is the very word of God. Verse 2. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, and made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. And there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. And now to the preaching of his word, let us pray. Gracious Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, please, please give us eyes to see, minds that understand, hearts that love, hands and feet that obey. Dear God, give us grace to receive this great word with joy and to longingly long for it, Lord, as it is the promise of the one who is faithful and true. Lord, I decrease that you may increase. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing unto you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Christ, let me pray. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> well, good morning, brothers and sisters. I greet you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I welcome you on this Lord's Day Sabbath as we continue our study through the Apocalypse of John. Brothers and sisters, over the past three weeks, your elders have been calling you God's people. To fix your eyes upon the one who is now and who will be for eternity, your true joy and satisfaction. In God, we presently have true happiness now. And when we depart from this life, we shall know perfect happiness, perfect beatitude. When we are blessed with the vision of God. It is the responsibility of the man of God who has been charged with shepherding the flock of Christ to ready God's people for the blessed vision and for the eternal state. It is our responsibility as ministers to guide the people of God along and through the narrow path to call their eyes, your eyes, to call their minds, your minds. And our hearts to look heavenward, to think heavenward, to long for the beatific vision, to long for that time when we will know perfect happiness. It is the duty of the man of God to admonish the people of God, the people of Christ, to loosen our grip on temporal things, temporal things of the world and to reach out. For perfect happiness that is found in God alone. May I encourage you this. Pray for your elders. Pray that God would continue to use your elders and men who will come after us. 
if the Lord tarries. To call his people to fix their eyes upon Christ so that they may know true and perfect happiness. This heaven we're thinking is the main goal of the book of Revelation. We have labored to make the point that the apocalypse of John is a pastoral letter of Christ to his church calling his people to rejoice in the victory of Christ even while they are in the midst of suffering. To see that there is a joy set before you for those who endure in Christ. The victory of Christ, His person and His work, ensures that our faith, saints, our sufferings, they are not in vain. There is a joy set before you. Don't lose heart. The incarnation, the virgin birth, the victorious life of obedience, the gift of love through the death of Christ on the cross, the descent into Hades to proclaim liberty to the captives, the glorious resurrection and the ascension of Christ ensure that our faith is not in vain and that the temporal sufferings are working out in us an eternal weight of glory. Therefore, do not lose heart. There is perfect joy set before you. The seven churches of Asia Minor experienced opposition and persecution. They were hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. They were perplexed, but not in despair. Struck down, but not destroyed. The Apostle Paul would say about himself and to all people who call upon the name of Christ, Therefore we do not lose heart. There is a joy set before us, therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. The people of God, you people of God, don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. We are given a glimpse, though through a glass dimly, of the joy that is set before us in Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ, through the visions given to the Apostle John, called this church that is in Asia Minor, the church throughout the centuries, the church today, And the church tomorrow, don't lose heart. There is perfect blessedness in God for those who endure. Do not lose heart. Though we are in fact wasting away, though we are in fact returning to the dust of which we were created, outwardly, inwardly we are being renewed. Inwardly we are being perfected. We are, we are being made holy. We are being sanctified so that when that blessed day comes, when Christ returns and raises all from the dead, by the grace of God, we will know that which we have been created for. We will be like him. We shall behold him because we will be like him. Psalm 36, 6, in your light, we see light. There. We shall see in full that which we see through a glass dimly. We shall know in full that which we only know now in part. And we shall be perfectly satisfied in God without end. We will never grow tired of what we see and know in God. Here in these verses, we are given a glimpse of what David longed for. What Pastor Isaiah preached so wonderfully last week. As for me, Psalm 17 I shall behold your face in righteousness. There was something ahead of David that David was longing for and looking to 
that the, the things of this world could not fill him, could not satisfy him with. David says, I will be satisfied with, with your likeness. I will be satisfied when I see you. He says, when I awake. He knows that there is something beyond this life and that when he awakes in the next, that which he sees in God will satisfy him without end. Dear saints, the perfect joy, the perfect blessedness, the inexplicable happiness that our brother David now knows. He knows it now. And what our brother David knows, Christ through the pen of John calls his people to loosen our grips of this temporal world that, that, that tries to fill our souls and just so that we can say along with David, as for me. I will behold your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. It's our job to call you to that. The things now are temporal and they won't satisfy. They, they give what Pastor Isaiah reminded me of last week. They will give you imperfect happinesses. Good things. But when you are with God, you will know perfect happiness. Here in these final chapters, two, two, just two chapters, our Lord gives us a taste of what we shall know when we depart from this life and awake in the next. When the tabernacle of God will be among men, he will dwell among them and they shall be his people and God himself will be among them. We are given images of the new creation. And let me be clear. The complete happiness, the beatific vision, the blessed, perfect blessedness that is promised to us. It is given to us upon departure from this life. Not just in the new creation. I've been making the point that it's only in the new creation. It's when you leave this life. Louis knows perfect blessedness now. Richard knows perfect blessedness now. Those who have called upon... Uh, Nora knows perfect blessedness now. Those who have called upon the name of Christ know perfect blessedness now. And in the new creation, we will all know it together. Today, with God's help, we shall consider the perfected bride and the comfort of her groom. The perfected bride and the comfort of her groom. Number one, the three, two points, the threefold description of the bride. The threefold description of the bride. Verse two, <clears throat> Revelation chapter 21, verse two. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Saints of God, would you notice first that the apostle sees? That is, John was given a vision of something that must be interpreted symbolically. The challenge throughout this book, as you already know, is to discover what do these symbols symbolize? John is given a vision of three different symbols in order to communicate, describe one thing. Well, what are the symbols? Here are the three symbols. Holy city. New Jerusalem, and that of a bride adorned for her husband. Holy city, they're there, in commas. New Jerusalem, and a bride adorned for her husband. Now, the challenge is, what do these symbols symbolize? I'm going to show my hand here at the beginning of the sermon. The symbols are meant to represent or symbolize the church. These three different symbols represent one thing. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
The first symbol that John is given to describe the church in the consummated state is that of a holy city. A holy city. The bride, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, is envisioned as a holy city. The vision of the church as a holy city comes on the heels of John seeing that in the new creation, there is no longer any sea. Or that the sea is no more. You will remember that throughout the apocalypse of John, the sea represents sin, wickedness, unrighteousness. Like the depths of the darkness of the sea, those who reject God and his Christ walk about in darkness and evidence the depths of their depravity by their opposition and persecution of the church. In the new creation, this threat of evil, this unrighteousness, this evil, this wickedness, listen, will be no more. The opposition to God, his Christ and the church will be eliminated. Idolatry will cease. Blasphemy will lose its tongue. Desecration of the Sabbath will end. Murder will be no more. Lies will no longer be spoken. Parents will no longer be dishonored by their children. The thief will no longer steal. The coveting heart will come to an end. All wickedness will be destroyed. There won't be any news station reporting another tragedy. We won't have our phones constantly reminding us of the sinful state of the affairs of this world. Corrupt leaders influenced by demonic forces, will both be cast into the lake of fire. Saints, in the new creation, the presence of evil will be no more because sin will be no more. This city will be a holy city, absent of sin and void of even the potential of sin. Not only will there be no sin, there will be no potential for sin. Sin, wickedness will be removed, listen to this, from outside of the church. But dear ones, sin, wickedness will also be purged from those who claim to be inside the church as well. We should rejoice that all evildoers outside of the church will be no more. But here's the other thing. God will also expose the evildoers who have tried to hide inside the church as well. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Listen to this. Therefore, he says, it's not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 15, whose end will be according to their deeds. Paul says, Satan out there describes himself or disguises himself as an angel of light. And then in order to try to pollute the church and make her unholy, to defile her, he will slither his way into the church and disguise himself as a man, woman, boy or girl of righteousness in order to pollute the church and make her unholy. The church will be presented to Christ not unholy. The church will be presented to Christ not defiled. The church will be presented to Christ holy, pure, Undefiled, without spot or wrinkle or blemish. All false teachers, therefore, who speak right now and who have spoke blasphemies in the name of God will have no place in the eternal state. 
you, you, you say, how does God allow this to, to continue? He will not allow it to continue. How does God allow false teachers to continue their false teaching? So that those who are not of Christ will be exposed as being not of Christ. And they will eventually, in the end, be eliminated. Now, the, the wheat will be separated from the shaft. All those false believers who professed faith with their lips, but whose hearts were far from God, will suffer weeping and gnashing of teeth for eternity. All, all, believer, all so-called believers who believe heresies will have, will have no place in this holy city. The sin from outside the church will be removed. And the sin that hides inside of the church, that was tolerated inside of the church, that was even celebrated inside of the church, will be purged from the church of Christ. She will be a holy city. Saints of God, you were chosen, three things, you were chosen to be holy. Ephesians 1 declares that we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless. You were chosen you are predestined to holiness. First Peter 2.9 You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his special people, that you may proclaim in him the praises, the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. God has set you apart before the foundation of the world to be holy. You were chosen. You are also right now being made holy. You were predestined to be holy. And right now you are being made holy. Saints, you are holy. Amen. And you are being made holy. You are presently holy in Christ as he has called you out of darkness to walk in his light. And you are being made holy as God is purging remaining sin from your members. Hebrews ten fourteen By one offering, he, Christ, has, has perfected all those, listen to this, who are being made perfect. Or... By one sacrifice, he has made holy all those who are right now being made holy. The one sacrifice of Christ has perfected you. And it is because of the one sacrifice of Christ that you are right now being perfected. You are being made holy. By faith in Christ, we are made holy. And through the work of the triune God within the soul of the elect, we are being made holy. How are we being made holy? We spoke about it this morning. You are being made holy if you place your faith in Christ through membership. Visible membership in the local church is one of the ways Christ purifies his bride on earth. In preparation to be presented to Christ as holy. Chapter 26 of our confession, which we discussed this morning, describes that those who are a part of the church are those who profess faith in Christ and walk in obedience to that gospel. How is that examined? It is examined when someone attempts to come to the church and say, I'm a believer. Elders and members say, let's see. Tell us your profession of faith. When we hear, we say, that sounds to be someone who knows and believes the gospel. Now let us see if you are producing, if God is producing fruit in you as you walk in obedience and through profession of faith and through obedience producing fruit. That person is recognized as a credible believer in Christ and they are welcomed into the church. Testimonies are examined. Faithful obedience is examined to the point that we can, to the point as, as far as we can tell, this person seems to be a member of the visible church of Christ. They come under shepherding. They allow their shepherds to teach them, to admonish them, 
to uh, give them God's word and to discipline them in God's word. Why? It is so that they can be holy, so that they can be sanctified, because it is through this process that God sanctifies you, his people, in preparation to be presented to him. If churches have no membership, no buffers, no examining of faith, those churches are often the most polluted churches. Those churches are often the most defiled churches. Because there are people within those churches who believe one one thing and then another thing all in the same church. How can that be a pure church? Christ purifies his church through worship. When the member joins the local church, this time of worship is what God uses, the means of grace, to make you like Christ. To purify you, to sanctify you right now as you're hearing the word of God. Bad thoughts, bad teachings, bad beliefs are going out and God's word is washing you pure in right reason, right thought, right belief, right loves, right passions. It's why what I said in the morning, pray that your elders never stop calling you to loosen your grip on the world and to reach out for that which will bring you most joy. It's what your elders are calling you to do and it's what God does through the means of grace, through prayer, through preaching. Through the supper, through baptism, we are being sanctified. We are being purified. Let us not disregard or devalue what God is accomplishing in us when we gather for worship. I've got, if you think that gathering for worship is just you attending, physically attending, and not attending to the means of grace by faith, then you are missing the fundamental reason why the means of grace are being offered to you. They are to sanctify you. They are to set you apart. They are to make you holy so that you may be ready to be presented to Christ, your your husband. Christ purifies you also, finally, through trial. First Peter, our trials are meant to refine us as pure gold. Trials and the enduring of trials, not just trials, but the enduring of trials, the, the getting through them, reaffirm our faith in Christ. And they also make us holy. They reaffirm that we are who we say we are. They teach us to depend upon Christ even in the midst of suffering. To see that these things are temporal. But there is a joy set before me which is why I I will endure them. You are holy. You are being made holy. And John sees that one day the church militant will be the church triumphant, perfected in glory. The holy church invisible will be the holy church visible. You will see all those who are truly in Christ. Right now, you you hope everyone you see is truly in Christ. In the eternal state, you will know everyone that you see is truly in Christ. There will be no remaining sin. There will be, uh, sin will be put to death. Uh, No sin will creep into our mind. No sin will will lurk in in our passions. No sin will pollute our reasoning. No No sin will lure us away from within or from without. Sin will be removed. We shall be holy. 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not yet appeared as what as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him. Because we will see him just as he is. We must be like him to see him as he is. And because we have this great confidence, we seek to live lives that are holy just as he is holy. Revelation chapter 21 verse 2 
I saw the holy city. Listen to this. The new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. The second symbol of the church that is given to John is that she is, listen to this, the new Jerusalem. Throughout the history of Israel, Jerusalem was called the city of peace. Even today, when someone speaks about going to Jerusalem, they will say, or they have said, they, they, are, they will say, I am going to, or I, ha, or, or I have gone to, what? The holy city. Or, or they will say, I, have, I am going to, or I have gone to the holy land. In order for a city to be holy, all of its citizens must be holy. Skyscrapers don't make a city. People make a city. In order for one city to be holy, there must be not one person who does not trust in Christ alone for their salvation. Why? Because, because in order for a person to be holy, they must trust in Christ alone for their salvation. Dear ones, Jerusalem is not the holy city, nor is it the holy land. There are locations in Jerusalem where holy events have taken place. The baptizing of Christ in the Jordan, the Sermon on the Mount of Olives, the, the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, the Via Dolorosa, the way of sorrow that Christ walked to the cross. But these events don't make the city holy. Faith in Christ makes one holy. And in order for a city to be a city, it must have not just a few citizens, but a bustling population of citizens. And every single citizen must trust in Christ alone in order for that city to be holy. It's why America is not holy. It's, it's why America is not God's nation. Neither is Jerusalem the city as it now is or stands today. Throughout the history of Israel and in the city of Jerusalem, prophets have called creatures made in God's image to be holy as God is holy. And they were persecuted and put to death because of it. In the holy city. God's chosen men have called Jerusalem to turn away from pagan gods. And they put them to death because of it. In the holy city or outside the city. Yes. When the son of God came to Jerusalem and called her to know God truly and to know his son. Jerusalem blasphemed or blasphemed, blasphemed the holy one and put him to death. Jesus would say to them, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The one who is holy. No, the one who kills the prophets. And stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. The earthly Jerusalem was not was was meant to give the nations a taste of the love of God, the holiness of God, goodness, mercy, beauty and justice of God. But she was just as imperfect as all the other nations. She was just as unholy as all the other nations. She displayed just as much hostility to God as all the other nations. And Jerusalem 
is still hostile toward Jesus Christ today. Look recently at the news of Christians being attacked by those who are practicing Judaism in Jerusalem. No, it is not a holy city. It is not a holy land. In order for a city to be holy, there must not be any false professions of faith in Christ. There must not be any who worship God with their lips but have distant hearts. Every citizen must be clothed in Christ and in his righteousness in order for that city to be holy. Jerusalem is not a holy city. And it is also why there are no perfect churches either. We are a representation of the church, but we also are not perfect. Chapter 26 of our confession, paragraph 3. There are churches that are mixed, a mixture of error, that are imperfect. We are imperfect now. We strive to be perfect churches, but we will not be the perfect church, the holy church, until we are gathered in the new creation as the one true church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jerusalem is not the holy city, but the new Jerusalem. She is the holy city. Jerusalem today in the Middle East is not the holy city, but the new Jerusalem. That will be gathered together as one in the new creation. She is a holy city. You know about the prophet Jeremiah's vision. He says, this covenant, chapter 31, which I make with you, with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Look at what life in this city looks like for those who are in this new covenant. Verse 34 of chapter 31, Jeremiah. They will not teach again. You'll never hear another sermon of mine in the new creation. There will be no need for it. You will not hear Pastor Isaiah preaching somewhere in the new creation. There will be no need for it. Each, each one, his neighbor, no one will teach his neighbor saying, know the Lord. We will all know the Lord. From the least to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wrongdoing and their sin. I will remember no more. There will not be one person in the new Jerusalem who does not call upon the name of Christ. And when you gather with the saints, you get a small taste, a small microcosm of what that looks like. Imperfect, but giving us a taste of what will be perfect. I said to the men a few days ago, last few weeks ago, and it's sticking with me now, that we were all having a, a conversation, talking about godly things. But because of remaining sin, there's a part of us that's saying, how do I exit this conversation gracefully? How, Lord, give me grace to stay engaged in this conversation and still be intrigued. I, I know this is a good conversation that I should want, but because of remaining sin, there are things that are pulling me away from this conversation. In the new creation, that will never happen. In the new creation, we will never want to, we will never want to exit that we will, conversation. We will never run out of things to say. It will be a, an eternal delight for every single member. We won't, we won't look at a, at a, a member of the church and go, I don't know. They, they seem to be on the fringe. I don't know how long they're going to stick around. Hopefully they stay. That will not happen in the new creation. 
The recipients of this new covenant will enjoy a quality of life wherein each person will intimately know God and also collectively know God from the least to the greatest. The Lord says that they will be a sinless or holy people because their sins will be removed from them. Saints of God, our Lord calls us, his people, to look forward to a time when the recipients of this new covenant will be joined together from every nation, every tribe, every tongue, made holy in intimate union with God through Christ. And we shall be called the new Jerusalem. It's the city that Abraham longed for. He was looking for a city, Hebrews 10 or 11, 10, which has foundations, whose architect, whose builder is God. That, that, that city, that new Jerusalem, that holy city, that's the, the city that Abraham said, that's where I want to go. That's where I want to be. Dear, dear ones, the Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, it's not a place that you can travel to per se. You can't get in the, gar- the car and go there. The New Jerusalem is a holy city. It's a multitude which no man can count. A number which is only known by God, who have, by the grace of God, been given eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that love and believe. A mind that is renewed and can rightly perceive the infinite value of the Lord Jesus Christ. The New Jerusalem is a people. It's not a a city you can drive. It's a people who have been chosen before the foundation of the world to be holy. This people is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. John's addition, he calls them the new Jerusalem, the holy city. It's derived from Isaiah chapter 62, verse 1 and 2, which refers to Jerusalem as to what that which it will be called in the end when it is given a new name at, at its time of glorification. The new name is explained in Isaiah 63. And here's what it is. It's signifying a new intimate relationship that Israel will have with God. Well, what is that relationship? It's described for us toward the end of verse 2 of chapter 21. In the metaphor of a marriage. Of the bride who is made ready to be presented to her husband. This explains the significance of the new Jerusalem. Listen to this. She's not God's new bride. She's God's true bride. Israel of Old Testament may say, no, we were the bride of Christ. No. This church that has been from Adam to the last person who will call upon the name of Christ, she is the true bride of Christ. And on that glorious day, she will at last be presented as a bride who has been made ready, adorned for her husband. When a man and woman decide that they will be joined in marriage, There is much preparation that takes place, isn't there? Especially for the bride. Much is to be done with her hair, makeup, finding the right dress, make sure that she fits the right dress, and all of that and more. Ladies might say, you have no idea what else we did. And you're right, I don't. But all of the preparations are so that she can be presented to her groom. So that he may look upon her, and my wife teases me because when she walked down the aisle, um, I was not like some of the softer men in the world who cried. I held my tie. I, all the, I, I was, um, the tears, I made them go back into my eyes. I said, don't you, and they ran back inside. 
But it is so that when the announcement, here comes the bride, is given, the groom might look upon her and see her as pure, dressed in white, as adorned, as made ready to be presented to him. So the two might find delight, for we will find delight in him, in Christ. Esther was prepared for Ahasuerus to be married, not for a month, not for two months, but for an entire year. Esther was made ready so that she could be prepared, prepared, presented to, prepared and presented to Ahasuerus. You are the bride of Christ, saints. You are right now being prepared. Ephesians 5, you are being purified so that you would be presented without spot or wrinkle, holy to Christ. Here comes the bride. Isn't she holy? My daughter's song, it was the first song I played for her when she exited the the NICU and we were able to bring her home. It's a song that when she hears, immediately she says, that's my song. Stevie Wonder, isn't she lovely? I sing it all the way home to her. Oh, saints of God, when we are presented to Christ, we will be presented as pure and holy to him. He will say about us, isn't she lovely? Isn't she wonderful? Secondly, and I think this is comforting in light of what I've just said. Secondly, the comfort of our room. This is verses 3 through 5. You can read them on your own time. Upon the holy matrimony, John receives the symbolic vision of tears being wiped away from the eyes of the bride. Now, let's ask this because I think it's important. Does this mean that we will have tears in our eyes, the church, When we are finally gathered as one in the new creation with resurrected bodies, does that mean that we will cry when we see God? Well, let's do this. Right now, souls are not are not crying actual tears because souls do not have tear ducts that that are produced from physical bodies. But in the resurrection, are there literal tears that will be wiped away? Get the song I can only imagine out of your mind. Let me first say, I know this sermon could be potentially way more moving if I argue that when we arrive in the new creation, we will have, as Spurgeon says, glistening tears of joy. That will preach so well, but I don't think it's true. The tears that John is speaking of is not tears of joy shed in the new creation. Why? Because the tears that John is speaking of are tears of sorrow. And not tears of joy. And can I say to you that tears of joy are often cried or shed in light of all of the sorrow that has come before. When my wife told me we're pregnant with Selah, I cried. And it was because for six years we had tried to have a baby and been told it was not going to happen. So it was happiness that what was said would never happen actually did happen. The years of saying, no, the test is negative. No, it's negative. And the doctor saying it will never happen was overturned by the grace of God. When my wife said, look at this, 
It was because of all the sorrow that I cried tears of joy. How do we know that John is speaking about tears of sorrow and not tears of joy in the new creation? Because if they were tears of joy, let them flow, but also they are a reminder of all the sorrow. And there will be no reminder of any sorrow when you are in the new creation. Rather, the sorrowful tears are for the church today, which is known as the church militant. The church who was who was suffering, the church who was enduring, the church who was who was going through persecution. It is the tears that the church suffers in Christ now. They're what we experience now. And here's here's what the tears are a result of. Right. The tears are a result of. Of death. The reason why the church cries now is because of death. They are sorrowful tears that John says will be removed. Now, listen to this. How can John say the tears of sorrow that are a result of death will be removed? How can John say that they'll be gone? Because the reason for sorrow will be gone. What is the reason for sorrow? Well, it's death. And why is there death? Because of sin. Sin has produced death, which produced mourning and tears and pain. Think about the greatest pains you've ever experienced in your life. They mostly revolve around death. Death is the result of sin, James says, that the end result of death, that is, when when sin grows up, it produces death. Someone might say, well, man, I had a heartbreak once upon a time. It was really, really hard. Or someone might say, I I got injured once. I, I, I ruptured this, or I broke that, or I tore this. Those injuries and breakups, they don't affect us the way that death does, though. Relationships can be repaired or we can just get over it and move on. It doesn't sting like it used to. Injuries can be repaired and and people can still live productive lives after injury. But death is final. Death does sting. No one wants to go to heaven knowing that there is any possibility that the enemy of death will be able to still continue to take life. The comforting promise from God is for those who are in Christ, death will be no more because sin will be no more. There is no longer any sea. Death will be no more because sin will be no more. Sin will be defeated once and for all time. Therefore, the effects of sin, which is death, will be cast into the lake of fire. Death and Hades thrown into the lake of fire for eternity so that the church who sheds tears now as we suffer. The church who is persecuted and who dies. They will one day rejoice because that sin, that persecution, and that death will no longer be possible in the new creation. In the eternal state. And Christ comforts his bride for all time with the words that he spoke in each of the addresses to the seven churches. And they are this. Here's the comfort. Here's the comfort of, of your bro, of your groom. Here, here it is. To the angel of the church, write, I know. You're suffering now. Our Lord says to you, I know. You're enduring now difficulty. The Lord says to the church of all time, I know. 
Every day is a challenge. The Lord says to you, I know. I know your deeds. I know your toil. I know your perseverance. I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. I know where you live. I know your love. I know your faith. I know your service. And dear ones, the Lord knows your tears. He knows and sees the times when you weep and yet press on. Because he's empowering you to press on. He knows and sees your trials because he's ordained them. And he has given you grace to walk through them. He knows your suffering and yet that you don't lose heart. Christ knows and he has not abandoned you. But he calls all you who are weary and heavy laden to come to him that he may give you rest for your souls. He's not left with left you without comfort. He's not left you without a word or a promise of victory and reward. Therefore, don't lose heart. It reminds us of, of the words of the Apostle Paul that I said in the beginning of this sermon. We have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power of God and not from ourselves, because we're afflicted in every way, Paul says. But we're not crushed. We're perplexed. Aren't you sometimes confused? Why is this happening? But not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Amen. Dear ones, yes. you might say, I hear that, Pastor. Yes. But you don't know what I'm going through. True, I don't. Neither did the Apostle Paul. But praise God, there's something that we believe about the Scriptures. We believe that, that God used men and their pens to write down his wisdom, his thoughts. Therefore, these words are not from a man. They are from God. Therefore, I don't need to know what you're going through. And neither does the Apostle Paul, because God who penned these words is telling you, don't lose heart. I know. I know. I know. I know. Don't lose heart. There is a joy set before you that is yours if you only endure and don't lose heart. Amen. Amen. 2 Corinthians 4.16 Our outer man is decaying, yet the inner man is being renewed day by day. You are being perfected. You are being readied. It's what your elders, I pray, are doing for you as we are serving God every Lord's Day, getting you to see he knows, but he is getting you ready for that eternal state. And if you just need to be reminded, how good is it? Please go back and listen to Pastor Isaiah's sermon 100 times from last week. He will remind you again and again and again. Okay. It's, there's a joy set before me that I've got to fix my eyes on. God, give me grace. Yeah, I'm being ready as a bride. And there will be no tears in the new creation. That which brought me sorrow in the temporal state will not bring me sorrow in the eternal state. I won't even remember it. Why? Because what's before me will be too good to remember any sorrow. 
I, I will, what I see before my eyes and what I know with my mind and what I love with my passions, there will be no room for any remembrance of sorrow. You won't think about your childhood and, and fill in the blank. You won't think about your teenage years and fill in the blank. Your adulthood and fill in the blank of the sorrowful times. You will be filled to capacity with joy and gladness. There will be no room for sorrow. You know those times when you're, you're in a moment of joy and everything that is sorrowful that you've ever known doesn't exist for that particular moment. You will know that times infinity when you behold God Almighty. The suffering that we experience will vanish upon the vision of God. We will only know happiness and no sorrow. Joy will be the conclusion of every thought. You say, I just I have a negative outlook on life, then thank God there was a joy set before you where the end period of every one of your thoughts will only ever be joy and happiness and gladness. There will be no person in the new creation who you are around and go, man, he's kind of a sourpuss, isn't he? It's kind of a downer. There will be inexplicable joy in every person. Victory in Christ will produce perfect beatitude for those who trust in him. And the result will be vanquishing of every sorrow that produced any tear you ever shed. Can you think of nights where you felt as though the sun would not rise and that this sorrow would be forever? The darkness would overtake you and then the sun rose and it chased away the darkness. Don't lose heart. He will wipe away every tear from your eye. Listen to this in in closing. Verse 5. He who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And then he says this. Write, these are words of the faithful and true. These words are faithful and true. Everything I just said, you can take it to the bank. Not because I said it, because God said it. They are the words of God Almighty. Was, is, and who is to come. Yes. You can place your hope in Him. Yes. And know there is great confidence in Christ alone. Amen. Saints of God, let us pray.